3: i'm stephen metcalf and this is the slate culture gap fest ham sandwich edition that's two m's hilarious pun it's wednesday september 28th 2022 on today's show confess fletch is the new feature film starring john ham as the irreverent Erwin M. Fletcher, the character made famous by Chevy Chase in the 1985 movie Fletch. This one is directed by Greg Matola, he of uh, super bad fame. And then Hilary Mantel has died, the novelist behind the Wolf Hall trilogy, uh, the huge commercial and critical triumph of our lifetime, arguably. We will discuss uh, those works, her other works, and her legacy with Slate's own Laura Miller. And finally... A rare thing indeed. The chess world has gotten a salacious cheating scandal that even Twitter cares about. We will discuss with Slate's own Nitish Pawa. Joining me, though, right now is Dan Coys, writer and editor at Slate. Dan, you're uh, those things, but you're something else as well. You're um, you're a novelist. It's true. My uh, my novel, Vintage Contemporaries, comes out in
1: January. Steve, I hope you've gotten your galley, uh, and I- I'm eager to hear what you
3: think. It's in my left hand right now. Perfect. And I'm um, yeah, I'm looking at the galley and I started it and you're you're a real novelist. Like you can really write novels. These people are real. They entered my consciousness immediately as real people that I cared about. So I mean I'm only five pages in, but that's that's hump number one, right? Thanks. That's Let, let's that's get the log amazing. rolling
1: started early, guys.
3: <laughs> well, it's true. Look. If I say it, it's true, Dan. That's the rule of the culture gap and has been from the beginning. Uh, and of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Hey, Dana.
4: Hey, how you doing, Steve? Uh, I'm
3: hanging in there. Yeah, thanks for asking. Shall we make a show? I'm ready to go. All right. Well, there are 11 installments, as I understand it, in the series of novels about I.M. Fletcher, Erwin uh, Fletcher, f- a.k.a. Fletch. There's also, of course, a beloved movie starring Chevy Chase from 1985, and yet no real reboot of note, at least until now, question mark. The issue is who to play this raffish, passive-aggressive white guy without seeming like too much of an asshole. Well, here comes John Hamm to try and confess Fletch. The movie is Nominally a murder mystery, it's instigated when a dead blonde shows up on the floor of a townhouse Fletch is borrowing. It turns into a shaggy dog farce featuring an Italian love interest, stolen art, and a host of oddball bit characters. In addition to Ham, it stars Lorenzo Izzo, Marsha Gay Harden, and uh, Roy Wood Jr. is the detective convinced Fletch is the killer, and we're going to hear their first meeting in the following clip. You Fletcher?
1: Yes. I'm Sergeant Inspector Monroe. Inspector, like at Scotland Yard? This is Grizz.
2: Hello, Mr. Fletcher.
1: Please, my mother calls me Mr. Fletcher. You can call me... Do you,
3: if you have a piece of fruit? I
1: had a pear. How did you know? Well, there's obviously
3: a piece missing. Grizz, check the front door. Okay. What's your full name?
1: I am Fletcher. Mm. I am Monroe.
2: Full name, please. Erwin. Maurice. Fletcher.
3: All right. And so it goes, Dana, let me start with you. Um, You know, the challenge here has always been, you know, most people know this because of Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase had one of the most unique and it's in its own way, uniquely weird screen affects of, uh, you know, any would be comic leading man ever sort of seems to be, you know, have shown up five minutes before just, he's just this kind of preppy half out of it, wry, kind of jerk in a way. And that's a fine line to walk. How do you think John Hamm pulled it off?
4: I mean, first of all, I'm going to undermine the premise of your question by saying, I think that Chevy Chase's performance as Fletch, to some degree, was not that important to the framing of this movie. When Greg Matola, the director, who also co-wrote the script, undertook to... to Do a Fletch movie. He has said that he was not thinking of Chevy Chase, although he did go through a period of considering casting Chevy Chase and doing a sort of latter day older Fletch. He ended up deciding to go back to the novels by Gregory MacDonald. I think this is the second in the series of 11 Fletch books. And to kind of rethink the character that way, somewhat like what the the Cohen brothers did with True Grit, right? Where they kind of set aside the John Wayne adaptation and went back to the Charles Portis novel. And uh, and I think John Hamm went into it as well with that kind of assumption that he was not doing a latter day Jeffy Chase but was gonna gonna rethink the character from the ground up from the book. Um but I love this new Fletch movie. Like I, the, I laughed out loud for the first time in the movie. I think in that that scene that we just listened to in our clip, where, where the the detective notices that there's a pear missing from a bowl of fruit because of the shape of the stack of fruit. It's just so silly. It's such a great takeoff on the kind of caper movie. So my entire notes for Confess Fletch. I sat down to watch it, thinking that I would have some notes for the show. And I all I see is the word "sprightly caper," <laughs> and underneath mm-hmm. "sprightly caper," I wrote four references of movies that popped, or one is a TV show that popped to mind while watching this "sprightly caper," which are Midnight Run, the Charles Grodin, mm. Robert mm-hmm. De Niro nice. kind of you Very know nice. caper movie from the eighties, The Rockford Files, because mm-hmm. I just feel like the persona as played by by John Hamm is is such a Jim Rockford type of character, right? Kind of raffish, womanizer, you know, like you say, Steve, a little bit. He could easily tip over into smarm, but somehow we love him and we stay with him. Also, Knives Out, and that specifically, I think the the the, the Ryan Johnson approach to dialogue reminded me a little bit of the script of this movie, which is that Ryan Johnson almost creates a, a lingo that his characters speak in that isn't naturalistic. It's not the way anyone really talks, but within the rules of his universe, right? That dialogue is is really sparkling and charming, and that's how this dialogue. Read to me, and then the last one, and this is mainly perhaps because of Marcia Gay Harden's very broad and wonderful supporting performance as a countess with a broad Italian accent. Is Clue? It kind of reminded me of the movie Clue mm. in that the mystery itself is silly, right? It's 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 it, the stakes are somewhat low, and uh, and what really matters is this kind of um, this freewheeling interaction among the characters and all the great supporting roles. Like there isn't. Any character in this movie that doesn't get a moment to be funny, really, really funny. Kyle McLaughlin as one of the suspects for the murder that Fletch is solving is hilarious, just so, so funny. Um, Marcia Gay Harden, brilliant. Just oh, and and John Slattery from Mad Men comes back for a too small part as a kind of cranky newspaper man. Anyway, everybody who wanders onto screen gets this moment to uh, to say some to say some really good dialogue and really bounce off each other, and it just has a tone that I don't here in that many movies anymore, which is just, uh, yeah, sprightly caper. <laughs> I'm back to my, my two words.
1: I want to push back against Dana's pushing back against you, Steve, which is mm-hmm. to say it. I agree that uh, Greg Mottola and John Hamm did not have Chevy Chase in their heads when they made this movie. But I think a lot of viewers do. I, and I think that matters in, in a movie like this, where the character is so closely Associated for basically for any movie viewer over forty with a movie that you know was playing endlessly on uh, HBO when we were fifteen, um, I don't actually like that Chevy Chase performance very much. I think the half-assedness that you describe, Steve, uh, which often serves him well in various comedic purposes, um, doesn't serve Fletch well at all because. Part of the fun of Fletch, as I understand it, uh, is that um, we are along with him on this ride and he is simultaneously a step ahead of everyone and also two steps behind where he probably should be um, (laughs) uh, in various social scenarios. That runs the risk of making him seem like an asshole Chevy Chase's Fletch seems like a real asshole to me, especially watching him now. John Hams seems effortlessly charming in a way that feels very movie star-ish to me and in a way that many movies don't attempt to place their stars anymore. They don't usually let their stars Mm. coast on effortless charm and wit.
3: Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I feel like I watched a different movie from YouTube, but let me lay my bona fides on the table here and then proceed. The first is that, I really hated the original Fletch. I saw it when it came out in 85. I just thought it was, you know, Chase had kind of crossed the line from this very deft coasting on your own charm, but it's actually much harder work than you think. You just don't see him breaking a sweat on and on into something like legitimately half-assed and that the character was an asshole, right? The funniest or most precise joke from the original Fletch was that Fletch is talking to someone a stranger? He's trying to get information out of. He regards that person as stupider than he is invariably in that movie. I mean, that's kind of the. It's a delivery system, uh, a piping into the egomania of young adolescent boys. It's like I'm the smartest person in the and, room, and of Chevy Chase. It, it should be said, and of and of Chevy Chase, who's been rezeal, revealed since to be one of the more regrettable people in show business, apparently. But so, um, so it's harder to watch now. But but the but the most precise joke is that. He figures out the very most famous or iconic person that the person he's talking to is so dumb they won't know the name of, and then offers that as his own name.
2: Hi there, I'm uh, Harry S. Truman from Casewell Insurance Underwriter
3: To see whether the person says, oh, your real name's Harry Truman, and of course they don't, because he's figured out exactly how stupid they are. It is, it is the worst, most superior... Wise ass, smart ass comedy, white guy, smart ass comedy ever made. Maybe I just couldn't. I, I agreed that they were not in any way keying off the original Chevy Chase performance, um, other than maybe you know in, in the marketing of the of the IP. But but um, really, in two thousand twenty one, like we, I just found this guy insufferable to be around. Like he he's having a first person in his own body experience at all moments, and a third person. Aren't I? Just the most charming uh intelligent person in the room, and yet he does no detective work. He kind of just fumbles through uh, life in some way. And there is a joke about his white privilege towards the end of it, and I thought, God, I don't know, that's a little on the on the nose for this movie. But I'll tell you what I did like about it. I loved Marsha Gay Harden's performance yep. so much. I would have taken I would have watched her for 90 straight minutes. She is so hilarious as the countess who's... What's her relationship to the female lead again? She's not stepmother. her mother. She's the stepmother of the female yes.
1: lead, yes. Whose husband has been abducted, supposedly.
3: Her husband has been abducted, and she plays it so broadly. And and, and the running gag is that she keeps acting put upon as if John Hamm, as if Fletcher's is trying to seduce her, when of course he has zero interest in doing it and and desperately wants him to. And it's just Dana, that that made me feel like I was watching the movie you've you you 2 have described.
4: Yeah, that's was one of the clue elements. But there were other supporting characters I looked forward to just as much, like Kyle McLaughlin's sort of what would you call him? Like he's a he's an art collector and a business tycoon, but he also loves dancing to EDM music, which is this running is joke. And is a
1: huge germaphobe.
4: It's just fantastic. It's just such a great collection of traits, and everybody just really enjoys their moments. I don't know. This felt like an old fashioned form of movie to me, which maybe Steve is part of what you're reacting against, and that mm. that made it seem somehow you know, square or patriarchal. I don't know. I just appreciated that it was a movie that knew how to smile at itself, smile at its characters. There's something warm about it, despite the fact that the humor is is fairly dark. It's a pretty um, humanistic movie in the end and has a lot of affection for its crazy cast of characters. And I don't know. I mean, it just felt so welcome to me to just be laughing out loud at a at a goofy caper and it was so beautifully done in its details. So uh, to me this is a bravo and one of my most pleasurable experiences of the movie so far this year.
1: One thing that has really struck me about this movie is the way that it delivered exactly the kinds of things I want from a movie that I see in a theater and it is a movie that is ostensibly being shown in theaters uh, but but that has been given zero promotion and zero distribution. Um, and there's a mm, really mm-hmm. like depressing interview on the website UpRocks with Greg Matola, um, in which he basically bemoans this exact situation his movie is in right now upon its release in a way that directors don't usually do in the middle of a publicity campaign. But it's that it's you can stream it on various streaming services, but it's also supposed to be in theaters. But but it's like it's nowhere, and there's no advertising. There's no one has put out the message that handsome John ham is in a movie directed by the guy who directed super with all these other stars. And right now in Washington, DC, if you would like to see this movie um, in a movie theater uh, and this has been the case since it was released, your options are, you can go to South Alexandria or to Geithersburg. Those are the two theaters in the Washington DC area where this extremely charming, I think funny movie full of stars is playing. And I understand that uh, that this is a topic of much discussion, probably to tedious uh, effect, but like the, the idea that a, a movie that to me seems like a totally fun, have one and a half glasses of wine and watch this in a the theater with friends experience, um, was almost given that treatment, but then was basically dumped because no one inside the studio could ever imagine anyone would want to see this in a theater. I found that very depressing.
4: Here, here! Yes, in the five boroughs of New York, it is showing in one theater only. Otherwise, you've got to start heading out to New Jersey. <laughs> it's absurd. I mean, give some give some props to Greg Matola, if nothing else. Right, as you said, Dan Superbad was it was a huge hit. I just, I, I mean, the, this speaks to a much larger question about mid-budget movies and the fact that nobody understands what to do with them anymore in the film industry. But good God, of course, go see this in the mm. theater. Then they'll make more movies like it.
1: I mean, but it's okay. hopeless. Well, it's, 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 the theater box office results of this movie are not going to have any effect on it. So honestly, the thing you should do is buy it on Amazon.
3: Right. Yeah, no no doubt. I will say I feel like you two were describing a movie I did recently see that we discussed, The Unbearable Weight of, ma- of Massive Talent, um, a, a sort of idiotic, affable... I can't believe I'm watching this and laughing my, you know, ass off the entire way through me. So you just never know when that funny bone is going to get hit and what's going to hit it. But I'm glad that you guys uh, liked it. I came around by the end somewhat. But anyway, it's uh, Confess Fletch. As Dan says, it's sort of nominally in movie theaters if you can find it. But really, it's streaming right now. So check it out.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card.
3: All right. Well, before we go any further, this is typically where we discuss business. Dana, what uh, what do we have this week?
4: Stephen, our only item of business this week is once again to tell you about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, Dan Kois, who is our third co-host this week in the absence of Julia Turner, will make his argument in favor of bathroom books. He just published a piece about this on Slate. What are the books that reside in your bathroom? If any, what is your approach to bathroom reading? Dan has very strong opinions on this subject, and we're going to talk about that with him in our Slate Plus segment today. If you belong to Slate Plus, you will hear that segment at the end of this show. If you don't belong to Slate Plus and you're dying to hear Dan Coyce's thoughts on bathroom books, you can always subscribe at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a Slate Plus member, you get to hear members-only programming like that segment I just described. You get ad-free podcasts, so never again will you have to hear pitching Dana make her ad pitch of the week. And of course, you will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Also, of course, and very importantly to all of us, you're supporting us, our magazine, our journalism, and the work of all our wonderful colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to Slate. So please, if you can, sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, onto the show.
3: All right. Well, the writer Hilary Mantel had already produced several highly regarded novels when she began writing about Thomas Cromwell, the lawyer and courtier to Henry VIII statesman, English statesman. Cromwell is remembered as a man of pure expediency in contrast to Thomas More, a man of supposedly fixed principles. But Mantel had another story she wanted to tell of Cromwell as a pragmatist, a man of this world as we all necessarily are, human beings of this world, and something of a proto-modern stranded in a still medieval world. Uh, right away, Mantel knew she was writing the best thing she would ever do, and I think she probably was right about that judgment. We're joined by Laura Miller to talk about Mantell and her legacy. She died this past week at the age of 70. Laura, of course, is the book critic and, and a cultural critic for Slate. Welcome back to the show.
2: It's great to be with you.
3: Laura, I mean, it's just a, a, a cliche barely worth repeating, but there's no separating out a great work of literary writing from the writing, from the telling. And, I mean, that's just so inevitable Evidence from page one of Wolf Hall. She immerses you completely in that world. She wanted you to be the reader, to be as caught up as Cromwell was in the intricacies, the intrigues of this sort of quasi medieval, quasi modern episteme. It's very disorienting in some sense. It's very literary language. And yet people found this book and loved it in quantities that turned it into a commercial triumph. Talk a little bit about. Mantel and what led her up to writing about this subject and how it just was so perfectly her subject to write about.
2: Yeah, well, she had, um, and Dan Coy should step in at any moment because I know he's a big Mantel fan too, and particularly of the novel that she wrote before she wrote Wolf Hall, which is Beyond Black, which is a a, a terrific novel in a contemporary setting as well. But she had written these novels. They were these kind of dark depictions of family life and she also wrote a a fantastic memoir called Giving Up the Ghost which was about the darkness of her own family life which was um a, you know kind of strange and 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 hard um in in a way that probably a person from the Tudor era would appreciate um she, she, she they were these sort of They were funny, but they were very sort of savage in their depiction of how people related to each other. And they had a significant sort of following or set of admirers, particularly among critics. But there was something about the formula that was like a bit much, I think, for the average reader. And when she moved to Thomas Cromwell, she had a scope that was commensurate with the sort of intensity of of that savagery and a, a kind of grandeur in a way that um, that compensated for the sometimes, um, you know, bleak view of human nature that, that she had and um, and in particular, I think because we we view that time as a as a harsh time, you know, it was it was hard to be someone like Cromwell, who was the son of a blacksmith and not at all uh, of aristocratic background, like most of the people who surrounded him in his working life, and he constantly had to defend his worth against those people, and was completely dependent on the this um, capricious king that he worked for. And but he was a man of huge ambition and vision. And I think it's not insignificant that he was also a committed Protestant. And so one of the things he was rebelling against was the authority of the Catholic Church, which was the church that Mantel herself was raised in in the north of England.
1: Laura, I totally agree with you that the that providing that distance the way the Cromwell books did, situating her the intensity of her writing in a semi-familiar past for readers is what really clicked i think for for the popular view of her writing and it also clicked as you say for her the, the, those early books um you know the memoir in particular is absolutely hair-raising because it is literally about her True, her honest and sincere belief that an intangible but very real evil presence hovered over her her entire life, supernatural, preternatural, and horrifying, and that she could never escape it, and that is remarkable to read in a in a memoir by a literary writer. Uh, it's also very difficult to swallow, I think, for many readers, placing that kind of uh, almost moralistic intensity in. The Tudor era allowed, I think, readers to come to her a little more easily, but also allowed her to write a different kind of historical novel than most people were familiar with. One that was almost totally interior, um, densely, completely immersed in uh, Cromwell's mind and his thoughts. That and its goal was to put us in his brain just as much as uh, her memoir, for example, put us in her brain.
2: Yeah. And he's, you know, he's famous for being sort of ruthless. And he usually is sort of this Machiavellian figure at the periphery of like... He's tenting
1: his fingers and cackling in the corner. Yeah, Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And in the Wolf Hall and then the subsequent novels, he is actually someone who's trying to make England a more meritocratic place. I mean, he is this incredibly gifted man he can do anything and when there there's this very famous quote um where uh she describes him as a man who is at home in courtroom and waterfront, bishop's palace or inn yard. He can draft a contract, train a falcon, draw a map, stop a street fight, furnish a house, and fix a jury. And you know, he's just a formidable figure. And and also if you if you look at that sentence structure there, it's it's a long sentence with a lot of clauses, but it's Nouns. It's verbs and nouns. Verbs and nouns. Verbs and nouns. This is a man of action, and that tone is fairly consistent through the piece. Dan is absolutely right. It's about his interior mind, and obviously he's thinking about bigger and and more abstract issues occasionally, but it's a it's a kind of forceful voice that you often also don't see in historical fiction, which tends to be a little on the flowery side. It's about people's desire to escape into a past that they sort of romanticized, even if they, you know, see it as tragic or, or uh, full of palace intrigue. It's still sort of f- full glamour and fabulous dresses and titles and that kind of thing. And And Cromwell just doesn't have much of a use for any of that stuff. He is just like a force. And you really feel that from that opening chapter, which does feel completely different from almost any other novel I've read set in that time period.
4: Yeah, Laura, there's a wonderful interview with Mentel for Buy the Book, that New York Times series where authors are asked about their own reading habits and what's on their bedstand and so forth. And I'm gonna just quote uh Mentel's answer to the question, Are there particular kinds of stories that you're drawn to? She says, Sad to say, I do like a bit of action. I get impatient with love. I want fighting. I don't like over refinement or to dwell in the heads of vaporous ladies with fine sensibilities. <laughs> I think that really goes to what you were saying about the first chapter of Wolf Hall, which I am embarrassed to say among this company is the only part of Wolf Hall I've read because I read it last night in preparation for our conversation since I've never read a whole novel by Hilary Mantel, only only essays and things here and there. You're and so lucky. Yes. You have
1: so much delight ahead of you.
4: I know. I'm so excited. And I've been wanting to read this this trilogy, you know, for years and years and years. But at the moment, it started to get really uh, hot and everybody was reading it, including people in my household, impressing it on me. I was suddenly writing my own book and sort of was putting it off for a moment when I could read it. But all that to say that the first chapter is there's almost no way I could imagine reading the first 10 pages of this book and not being desperate to finish it. And that is, Laura, I think you're right, because it starts in in such a, an earthy place. You know, it doesn't start by describing the exterior of a castle and then moving in, right? It's not that kind of historical fiction. It starts literally from the ground up, right, with our hero on the ground being kicked by his own father and experiencing this moment of brutality when he thinks that he might be stomped to death at that very moment. And just the prose completely goes with the the urgency and intensity of that scene. Very short sentences, as you say, just noun verb, noun verb, no flowery descriptions, and a very... Um, muscular kind of sense that you're right there on the ground in the action. And so to build history in that way, you know, not to set a scene and then zoom in, but to just like put us on the ground with a boot over our head is an incredible way to start a historical novel.
1: Can I step back for a second? You know, it's Laura, you talked a little bit about the difference between those early books and and then and the way that Wolf Hall was was received. The week that Mantel died, I happened to be reading um, a uh, memoir called Circus of Dreams, which is by John Walsh, who was a literary editor uh, at a number of different papers in Britain in the 80s. And it's bas- It's a book about Britain in the literary 80s. And so, you know, the front cover is pictures of Martin Amis and Ian McEwen and Julian Barnes. Um, and it's about, you know, sort of the f- the flowering of a certain kind of uh, exciting English writing in that time. Um, and it's all the the Granted Young Novelist list and all that. And it is, was very striking to me reading this book, which is n- not actually that good, but, but is catnip to a person like me who's infatuated with this era. The way that the book clearly, that Walsh clearly felt forced by later circumstance to shoehorn whatever stories he could remember of Hilary Mantel into this <laughs> history of the British literary 80s. Yeah. Her first novels came out in the 80s. They were almost totally ignored. I I do. I agree with you that some critics like them, but but really she just did not sell and she did not have a place in this firmament. And so this book all of a sudden like drops her in a couple of places and then at the end mentions that of all of the people he mentioned in this book, she's the one who won two Booker prizes. Um, But she was just not on anyone's radar in those early years. And to go back to those books is those early books is to be reminded that I I agree that Wolf Hall is her masterpiece. The trilogy is her masterpiece, but those books are so rewarding and astonishing Um, to go back to them and see not only how good they are, but to see within them the reasons why they were easy to dismiss um, because they seem in some ways like the work of a prototypically hysterical woman um, when in fact they were true works of art about hysteria. Um, I find that really amazing. And um, and you mentioned Beyond Black, my my personal favorite of her books, even though I agree that Wolf Hall is the masterpiece. Beyond Black is just one of the most astonishing things I've ever read because it is a ghost story that – um, takes it for granted that we should believe in a purely literary setting that uh, ghosts are real and that they are assholes. Um,
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's so, so good. great. <laughs> and it's kind of a road novel, too. In a way, she's, you know, she reminds me, her career trajectory reminds me a bit of Shirley Jackson, mm. who was not especially esteemed during her life because of a certain idea of who a great American novelist was, and who now is probably more widely read than someone like Norman Mailer. I mean, her she had successful books. She didn't have a Wolf Hall that, that you know, landed her two Pulitzers. But there is this sense that, I mean, I can remember at the time... Um, Critics like Lori Muchnick, who was editing the book's coverage at at Newsday, constantly recommending Hilary Mantel before Wolf Hall came out. But there was just a you know that kind of flash period of British literature. She was not glamorous in the way that Martin Amis and Julian Barnes and and Salman Rushdie were, and um, she just didn't fit that idea of a sort of cool Britannia literary. Um, resurgence. And, you know, she laughed last.
1: And she was really mm-hmm. aware of that, too. And one of the pieces that someone posted after she died, which I had never read before, but which I recommend to everyone, is a piece she wrote for the London Review of Books. She was a longtime critic for the and his, historical writer for the London Review, Review of Books, and many of her pieces have been collected uh, and, and anthologized. She was great at that. But she wrote a defense of Kate Atkinson, uh, the year that Atkinson's first novel won the Whitbread um and then a bunch of people like you know wrote mocking pieces about how this light comic novel by a you know a nobody won this award and you know instead of all these richer books by men and she wrote just like a blistering defense of the book and and attack on those who would dismiss that kind of book um that I found just like astonishing that it ran and that everyone who had critiqued the book did not immediately burst into flames. Uh, you <laughs> know, and like mm-hmm. reading mm-hmm. that Come in the context me. of her career, yeah. uh, I also yeah. found that really revelatory.
3: I do want to say one thing very quickly. Ford Maddox Ford once said that two kinds of books sell a lot of copies, the very best and the very worst. Um, you know, Wolf Hall and, and its sequels, the trilogy, are obviously uh, in the former category. Wolf Hall alone, I believe 600,000 copies sold uh, in the United States alone, and the trilogy worldwide, something like 5 million. Uh, I just find it, Laura, so heartening that something seemingly this literary and maybe on the surface somewhat abstruse, I mean, it's just nothing but juiciness, once you get into it, uh, was able to connect with an audience of that scale. It gives you some Faith in the world. But thank you so much for coming on and talking about Hillary Mantel. This was, this was a huge pleasure.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done which is music to his ears. Call, click or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
0: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
3: All right. So on to a rare thing indeed, not only a cheating scandal in the world of chess, but one that's leaked out uh, via Twitter and other outlets and uh, more mainstream consciousness to discuss it. We're joined by Slate's own Tish Pawa. Tish, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. I'm going to have you walk us through this scandal, but as I understand it, the brief outlines are uh, the Grand Chess Tour kicked off. It was at the World Chess Hall of Fame in St. Louis. Um, early on, it pitched the world number one Magnus Carlson, against a 19-year-old Twitch star, and I guess something of a chess wunderkind, uh, named Hans Moke. Niemann. And Niemann beat him. Uh, Afterwards, the chess world, and I believe Niemann himself, pointed to certain oddities in the match that indicated that um, Niemann might have been cheating, and since then, sort of breaking news very recently in the last couple days or so. um, Carlson has publicly uh, published a letter indicating quite seriously that he felt Niemann cheated against him. Why don't you walk us through exactly what went on here and what you think may have gone on here?
5: So yeah, as you said, the final leg of the Grand Chess Tour, the Sangfield Cup, uh, kicked off earlier in the month, and both Neiman and uh, Carlson were in there as wildcard players, competing for just a bit of a prize, but not necessarily for all the formal placements and rankings within. But yeah, so when they played. Carlson was beaten. It was a shock because even though Neiman is quite good, I mean, very, very good as far as chess, he's also nowhere near as highly ranked in the overall um, chess rankings determined by the International Chess Federation as Carlson is. I mean, Carlson is the world number one. So that was a big shock in general. And, you know, Neiman was, I mean, I think probably rightly very cocky about it afterward. That post-match interview was truly an
1: incredible document Mm. of peacocking. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I feel like that is sort of the thing that drew me most into the story, was watching him showboat afterwards, like, spiking in the end zone.
5: Yeah, so people started analyzing the game immediately because they were like, whoa, this never happens. This shouldn't happen. This is very weird that the world number one was just upset like this from this guy who's like, Highly ranked, but not that highly ranked. You know, not that, not normally like a contender in any regard. So people started looking at the moves. They started looking at the ways that Neiman had responded to Carlson a lot. And they noted also because Neiman was playing the black pieces, meaning he was going second, meaning he was already at an inherent disadvantage, that a lot of things were already stacked against him. But he seemed to. Be able to counter uh, Carlson's moves very effectively and very quickly, even though they were like very sort of complex and for facing attacks. So then there is assumption like, oh, maybe Neiman knew beforehand that Carlson was going to play this move, or that he had some other way of uh knowing whether telepathically or something that mm. Carlson was. Uh, going to play how he played and Neiman would respond in kind. Or of course, then there came the anal beads theory, which That's, did not start. Maybe we, as should, a, maybe we should wait on that. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I was so, just gonna I was just yeah. gonna say what and, and then Carlson fanned the flames mm-hmm. by withdrawing from the tournament and tweeting the the beloved Jose Mourinho quote. Maybe we can maybe Cameron you could include uh, this uh, famous Jose Mourinho quote, if I speak, I'm in big trouble. I don't want to be in big trouble.
5: I prefer really not to not to speak. If I speak, I am in, in big trouble. In big trouble.
0: And I don't want to be in big trouble.
1: The famous not no denial denial of cheating occurring somewhere on the field.
5: Right. 100%. Yeah. So he resigned right after Neiman's match. And then but also added, um, even though he didn't like say anything about cheating, he did tweet out that cryptic message, as a uh, Dan just noted. But he at the tournament itself later, they installed more anti-cheating apparatuses. Like they started scanning players more. They really frisked Neiman in particular for like fifteen minutes before his uh, following match. What are they frisking him for? Uh, who knows? Like There are all sorts of weird things that players have done to cheat in tournaments before. There was a controversy, I think, in 2015 when an Indian player had two cell phones strapped to his legs <laughs> in order to like, get some signals and reception as to what he should be doing. There have been other um, um, accusations of hidden devices that are taken advantage of whenever like someone goes to the bathroom during a match or such. Or, you know, there's someone standing to the side who might be signaling in a weird way.
4: But how would that person know? I mean, I guess the idea would be that it would have to be a conspiracy where there were groups of people madly researching your opponent's previous games and sending you some sort of coded signal about it because obviously they're no more telepathic than the player is.
5: Right, exactly. And that's the thing. That's why you then got a lot of grandmasters pushing back saying, no, I don't think cheating is the most likely scenario here. There's, There's a very strong already a very strong security apparatus at matches like these. And the most likely explanation here is that Carlson just had a bad game. And Neiman just happened to take advantage of a situation where where what he says is he'd previously watched a Carlson game like right before their match where Carlson had used a similar move as the one he used at the Sinkfield Cup. So then Neiman was able to respond in kind because he knew. But then some people were like, oh, but that game is not actually a good comparison. And actually it didn't happen when you said it did, which was true. He misstated the exact date and location of the game he was referring to. So that just uh, fueled more regulation like, oh my God, did someone leak something to Neiman in advance? But yeah, like like you said, it, it would require so much coordination and so much like buy in from everyone else in the chess world. And I mean, Magnus is the world number one, and he is the most beloved and respected player in the game right now. Like, the reason they started doing the frisking at the tournament after he withdrew is because he withdrew. They don't want to piss off Magnus. So, I. It is really funny to me to think of like.
1: Imagining a conspiracy that could defeat Magnus Carlsen at chess requires imagining not only one but a number of people who are better than Magnus Carlsen at chess and who can then respond quickly to any move he might make, uh, come to agreement on how to counter that move and convince the player at the table to do it. It seems sort of impossible. Right, exactly,
4: well, since we're speculating about methods, you have to get to the Chekhov's gun of the anal bead theory yeah. that you mentioned earlier, <laughs> and that you write about really wonderfully in your in your coverage of this tournament. okay, why anal beads?
5: yeah, so this started off as a joke post on you know various message boards, like, oh yeah, so this is so originally it was said that the anal beads thing was something Carlson would do, and that he would have beads, um he'd be employing them at the time and they would be electronic and someone from afar with some sort of remote control would be vibrating different patterns based on um what he should do in a certain game. And so what the post was speculating was like this time it's Neiman who used the beads. He's the one who uh turned the tables on Carlson this time and Carlson wasn't expecting it and again this was not made as a serious proposition but then you have Elon Musk who is very (laughs) online obviously very much on Reddit and can't avoid weighing in on a good controversy running away with this on Twitter too he eventually ended up deleting his tweets but then you saw other Twitch um, analysts and people like running away with this theory as well and then you had Neiman responding, saying, "Look, this is not a thing. I will play naked if you want me to." Mm-hmm. For the record, that would not actually. <laughs>
3: yeah, reveal, I know. I thought the same thing. <laughs>
5: yeah, there's, Tish, there's I need there's you to. Ba-
3: I need you to back up just one second, though. Are you saying that there were once credible, or at least? somewhat credible accusations against Carlson for using something like the anal bead technique, or it was a joke about Carlson because Carlson was such a, you know, flawlessly complete player.
5: Yeah, it's definitely a joke. Like Carlson is, I mean, truly a once in a multiple generations player. Like this is the man who is considered the only competitor for the crown with like Gary Kasparov, you know? So mm. there's the anal beads thing is just not, it, it's absolutely not a thing. I could be surprised. I mean, there are many, many chess tournaments out there and many, many weird ways of cheating. But as I mean, I'm sure as the I think, answer is that
1: someone's trying it, mm-hmm, but I mm-hmm. bet it's not as effective as you might hope it would be.
5: Right. Cause hmm. also in the game of chess, like they're infinite, combinations and possibilities. How how do you come up with different vibration signals for each one?
3: Hmm. Also, the game
5: of chess requires focus. Right, yeah. (laughs) And you can't really do that if you got something (laughs) tickling you from behind.
3: (laughs) Well, so then in one sense, we may be bearing the lead here, which is that if Carlson is a once every 60-year, 40 40 to 60-year player, Neiman at the age of 19 might be making a bid to displace him as a player of that quality, right? If he's. I mean, uh, how often does someone of Neiman's current, as people currently understand it, ability and rank beat someone who's uh, the level of a Fischer or a Kasparov?
5: Yeah, so it's interesting. Carlson, in recent months had anyway been kind of stepping away from deep involvement in chess as much as he had been. Like he said, he won't be defending his world champion title, and that he would only play at that level if he were to beat someone from the younger generation. But at at that time, too, um, he's been still playing in various tournaments. Like, uh, right before this, he was playing the uh, FTX Crypto Cup, and uh, he lost to a 19-year-old Indian Grandmaster who's nicknamed Prague. And, well, I talked to him a little bit about this. He has a lot of, like... Admiration for younger players and really wants to see himself like still be on the top of the crop. Like, he talks a lot, and so do a lot of grandmasters about how look, all these young players they're trained on computers, right? They play online or they play these uh, AI trained models or they work with these engines, like, they. They have all this sort of computerized way, that's the word they use, of playing, but I can be the one who still beats them. However, Carlson has been losing to quite a few of these young players recently. Like, it's still not like anywhere near to Denta's absolutely dominant record, but it has been happening. So it's not implausible that he could lose to someone like Neiman. Again, though. What brought scrutiny on Neiman as opposed to someone like Prague is that Prague is still much higher ranked in the overall chess rankings than um uh, than Neiman is. How old is Carlson now? Carlson is in his mid thirties.
4: Which is I mean you can play chess, obviously your career can go on for the right. rest of your life, right? So he yeah. could dominate for, for 30 years to come.
1: Right. I don't know. It is interesting to me that there, that chess is getting moneyballed in a way that people are optimizing. The younger players are using these tools to optimize play. And as seems to have happened in all competitions, old the older generation of players is sort of struggling to work out what that means for their dominance and their reign and the way they understand the game. Like, you know, it's like, It's not that different from all of a sudden someone, a baseball player, discovering that they're hitting into the shift every single game, and and how does that change the way you address things? Um, And is that a real tension right now between like the younger generation, the online generation of Twitch players, and older players?
5: Oh, absolutely. And going back to Neiman, you can definitely see this in his case too, because when the cheating accusations first popped up, he said, you know. I did not cheat at this match, and I never cheat on over-the-board chess, you know, physical game board chess. But he admitted to, when he was a kid, cheating in some online tournaments uh, huh. when he was 12 and 16, respectively, you know, using different um, bot and com- engine computer methods. And so... There is, I think, definitely a scare that, like, okay, these younger players are accustomed to this. And maybe in these cases, like what Neiman was referring to when he was younger, he they have no compunction about using
3: them. Mm. All right. Well, Tish, so you're obviously close to the story. You've met Carlson. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me a verdict. In, in your opinion, do you think that Neiman cheated?
5: I really don't think so. I, th- I think Carlson just had a bad game and Neiman just happened to know what to do to counter some careless moves. And like, it happens. It happens to everyone, even the best player in the world, right? Even I lose a chess sometimes.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
5: Yeah, we all do. Yeah.
3: All right, well, um, Tish, thank you so much for coming on the show. Your piece is very fun. It's up on Slate. We'll link to it. Come back soon.
5: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.
3: All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse. All
0: right. Well, Steve, I am
4: embarking on a new fresh fall chapter of book promotion travel, which is fun after having had a summer where I stopped doing it for a bit. I just keep getting asked places. And as soon as somebody is willing to allow me to break even and sell even three books, I will go on the trip. Especially after two years of COVID non-travel. So as a result, I've been watching lots of stuff on planes. uh, And I saw the perfect, perfect airplane show on my last uh, plane trip back from, where was I coming back from L.A., I guess. Uh, It's called Attenborough and the Mammoth Graveyard. So to start to process how completely (laughs) dana (laughs) that title is, this is a a BBC uh, one-hour documentary that happened to be playing on United. Thank you, United. Uh, which brings together some of my favorite things. Sir David Attenborough, who we've, whose praises we've sung many times. I'll watch any nature program uh, that's narrated by him. Also, mammoths. I'm a huge elephant fan, and I love prehistory, archaeology, paleontology, anything like that. And this episode brings all of those things together. It was kicked off, this this episode was made because this couple in England. Uh, Down in the south of England, I think Swindon is the town they live the nearest. They're not archaeologists by profession in any way. They're just hobbyists who love fossils and collect them and go fossil hunting every weekend and who met because of their love of fossils. They're very sweet. As it happens, they were fossil hunting one weekend and they came across a giant mammoth thigh bone. And that ended up leading to the discovery and excavation of this huge mammoth graveyard, which also had some human artifacts. And then there was a question of whether, you know, Neanderthals had existed at the same time and had maybe hunted the mammoths. And so it's this this whole, you know, clue search in this mammoth graveyard with David Attenborough just walking you around and narrating. It's so endearing. And there's wonderful, wonderful. Choices that the producers made, including at one point recreating wooden spears, sort of javelin-style spears, like the ones early humans might have had at the time, and having Britain's two best javelin throwers, <laughs> a man and a woman, throw them at a target shaped like a mammoth <laughs> to see whether it was possible to <laughs> hit them from a distance, <laughs> while, again, David Attenborough just stands around smiling and enjoying it all. It's so wonderful. So anyway, Attenborough and the Mammoth Graveyard.
1: It's streaming on United Flights. Find it Streaming. on next United <laughs> Streaming
4: on United. Looks like it's on Prime as well. I'm sure that you can dig up a copy somewhere, but I couldn't recommend it more highly.
3: I love it. Uh, Dan, what do you have?
1: Uh, I am recommending a book, a memoir by Ander Monson called Predator, a memoir, a movie, an obsession. Um, Ander Monson is a uh, short story writer and memoirist and web writer and music writer who has uh, seen the 1987 Arnold Schwarzenegger film Predator, 145 times. And in his memoir Predator, he watches it for the 146th time along with you and gives it an intensely close reading. Uh, Scene by scene, Monson disassembles the movie and transforms it into a memoir that's about guns and politics and about juvenile delinquency and a meditation on manhood. It is an extremely unexpected book in every way. I didn't expect any of the things that happened in it to happen in it. Uh, and I found it totally delightful. Uh, I'm a big fan of uh, books that, in minute detail, pick apart works of art and use them to tell larger stories. Uh, and I haven't read many that do it as well as this. So I, I really recommend this one.
3: Oh, that sounds cool. Okay. I want to recommend um, a, a YouTube video of all things. It tells the story, uh, actually, while the music itself is playing, it tells the story of a saxophone solo that uh, it's one of the more extraordinary things I've I've ever seen. I guess I read somewhere that at the 19—had read, this is how I found uh, it—that at the 1956 Newport Jazz Festival, which was very new, it might have been the second or third one ever— I don't think it was the first Duke Ellington was playing with his band and uh Ellington was old, old news people didn't care about Ellington anymore I don't know that quite at that moment the sense of him as a you know as a as a truly one of the great if not the great musical genius of the American 20th century had quite become received, uh, you know, uh, the received opinion about him, but whatever, he was old news. And there was, there was a sense like, you know, this is a museum piece. And I guess, you know, I mean, you know, it's, this is, we're getting into the heyday now of Coltrane and Miles. And anyway, uh, as I understand it, Ellington, uh, goes, his orchestra goes on late. There's some delay, maybe there's a flight or weather or something like that. Um, crowd's not that into it and they start playing, um, uh, the piece Diminuendo and Crescendo in Blue, and um, uh, at that at that time the Ellington Orchestra featured a, a jazz tenor saxophonist who I really admire, named Paul Gonsalves, uh, whose name I may be mispronouncing. I don't think I've ever heard it pronounced out loud, but anyway. Um, and in the middle of it, Gonsalves starts taking his tenor sax solo, and he I guess he was on fire that night, or he just was having a good night, or Ellington just wanted to get into it, or Ellington was. Possibly saying fuck you to the um, sponsor of the Newport Jazz Festival, who I think, you know, kind of he, he hadn't treated him maybe with adequate respect. There's some backstory, but I don't know that it's entirely clear what happened. But Gonsalves starts playing the solo and it's meant to go a chorus or two or whatever. Uh, and the crowds, uh, uh, Ellington just eggs him on, tells him to keep playing. I mean, I guess Gonsalves just got into it and, and and went an extra chorus or two. And, uh, and the band started heating up behind him. And it's just that moment that jazz exists for, right? This thing happens in the moment, in that moment. It's never happened before. It's never going to happen again. And it's a relationship between all of the players... Uh, individually coming together organically as one, even as one person separates out and does something virtuosic and extraordinary. And what I love about the story is I actually really like Gonsalves as a a musician, but his thing is that he's always been a second tier. You know, he's not one of the giants. He's not up there with like Coleman Hawkins or Lester Young or, or Coltrane, certainly, or Charlie Parker. He's just not in that class. He didn't think he was in that class, but he just had a moment. And uh, there's a YouTube video that's just perfectly produced because it, the music begins playing, and it's just a series of title cards describing what was happening, the backstory to it, how it happened, what was going on in the crowd, the history of the recordings. There are two recordings of it, and neither one is exactly perfect um, for various reasons. You can't sync them because this is an analog world. They're probably not going to sync perfectly, um, and uh, on and on and on. And it, it, it's just one of those things where... You have the aesthetic rush watching this YouTube video. Anyway, if you want to just Google it, it's a famous solo by Paul Gonsalves. Put that into YouTube. It'll pop up. Uh, It's got about 110,000 views. Make sure you have the right one because this is really beautifully produced. Dan, as always, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show. I'm going to plug it one more time. Let's get the log roll going. I have it in my hand. It's a beautiful looking galley. Vintage Contemporaries, a novel by Dan Coyce. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. And of course, Dana Stevens. Dana, the author of Cameraman, her book about Buster Keaton. Uh, Still out on the road for that, man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're like the Grateful Dead. You're like always on the road, Dana. I love it.
4: Totally. Yeah, I'm the Willie Nelson, the Bob Dylan of book promotion. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of yeah. that, I just wanted to mention to any residents of the Philadelphia area or the Bay Area or Seattle that I will be in your city sometime in the next couple months to promote the book. So if you live in those cities and you're interested in knowing more, you can email us at slate.com Say something in the subject line about, you know, looking for my book dates and I'll send them to you.
3: Superb. You'll find links to some of the things that we talked about today at our show page, that's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest culturefest.slate.com. Our introductory music is by the composer Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dan Kois and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon.